I was privileged to grow up in a reasonably healthy, nearly normal family. And my, my dad was not a man of faith, but you know what's interesting? Without even knowing it, he brought a lot of godly characteristics into his role as a father. Now, he certainly made his share of mistakes, but he did one thing incredibly well. He loved me. He loved me with a full and well-rounded love. And we often think of love as always being nice, but sometimes love is tough, right? So my dad loved me, which means there were moments of tenderness, but it means he also challenged me, and he encouraged me, and he held me to standards. When I disappointed him, which I often did, when I fell short of his expectations, which I often did, he would sometimes get angry with me. He would sometimes discipline me. But here's what's so profound. None of my failures could derail his love for me. And so I grew up knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was loved. Loved unconditionally. There was nothing I could do that would unearn my father's love. And here's why this is so important. Unconditional love makes us secure. And when un unconditional love is the foundation of a family relationship, it dramatically changes how we do life together. For example, when my dad would say, son, I want you to go take care of that whatever that chore was or expectation. My motivation for doing that, for obeying my dad, wasn't fear of punishment. My motivation was love. I wanted to obey my dad because I wanted to please him. I wanted to honor him. I wanted to live up to his expectations of me. He loved me. And I wanted to demonstrate my love by doing what he asked. And for me, in those formative years of life, the highest praise in the world was when my dad would say, well done, son, I'm proud of you. Oh, man. Whenever I heard those words, <laughs> it was a great day. Now, I, rec I recognize not everyone was privileged to have a dad like that. What I experienced was very, very special. But here's why I bring this up. I want you to know that because I was blessed to have such a good relationship with my human father, then when I became a follower of Jesus, it was a lot easier to understand what it means to have a heavenly father. Because I learned that just as my relationship with my dad was defined by love, my relationship with what the Bible calls my, my Abba, my heavenly dad, that relationship also is defined by love. But we need to ask, what kind of love? How is God's love expressed, and how do we experience it? Well, here in the church, we often talk about how the love of God enables us to be forgiven of our sins and have the guilt of those sins taken away. And that is incredibly true, and it's incredibly important, yet God's love is so much broader and deeper than that. Because God does not just meet us at the point of salvation and forgive us, 
and then move on. And that's because God is not primarily our judge. He's not primarily our ruler. Scripture says that God is our father. And we are his children. And so after he forgives us, he adopts us into his family. And then he walks with us through the ups and downs of life. And like a good father, he loves us and challenges us and corrects us and disciplines us. And he gives us gentle love and tough love. And in our relationship with our heavenly father, just as in a relationship with a human father, we can fail, we will fail. But God's love never fails. You and I cannot do anything to earn God's love. And we can't do anything to unearn His love. He loves us simply and solely because we, we are His children. And this means then that the church of Jesus Christ, of which we here in Thurston are a part, we are a unique spiritual family. We're all God's children. We all share the same spiritual father. And that's pretty incredible. And that family identity is essential to our health and well-being. That family identity is one of the things that should mark us as followers of Jesus. It's a mark that we need to let stick to us. It's a mark that we should stick to as a community of faith. Because a sticky community of faith lives each and every day as beloved children of God. And that's what we're going to encounter in today's Bible passage as the Apostle John describes in detail what it means for us to be God's children. And as we're going to see, John approaches this topic in a unique way by showing how each member of the Trinity has blessed us with godly love. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, each play a distinct part in enabling us to live as beloved children of God. So with that in mind, let's see what God has to say to us today in the book of 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28. John writes, And now, little children, abide in him. I love that word abide. Because <laughs> it means to cling to, it means to stick to, it means to hang in there, it means to stay there. Abide in him. He's talking about God. Abide in him so that when he appears, the return of Jesus, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that every, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And then listen to this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. We should be called children of God. And so we 
are. The reason why the, why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So here in this opening passage, we, John focuses on this incredible love that we have received from the Father. And what's interesting to me is that God's love is so great, it's not easy to describe in human terms. Even the words in the original Greek have some ambiguity, and as a result, different Bible translations give us different readings of chapter 3, verse 1. And in this particular case, I think the ESV, that's the version that we use, I think it's a bit bland here. And as a result, we can miss the impact of John's words. So here's a sampling of chapter 3, verse 1 from some other Bible translations. See what an incredible quality of love the Father has shown to us. What marvelous love the Father has extended to us. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. Aren't those rich descriptions? The Father's love is great, it's incredible, it's marvelous, and he's shown it to us and extended it to us, and he's lavished it on us. And John takes all those descriptions, and he tells us that the result of this lavish love is demonstrated by an amazing fact. We... We are God's children. Can you let the impact of that sink into your mind and heart and soul? I am God's child. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're God's child. We, the church, together, are God's children, which means we're brothers and sisters in God's family. And so often we just sort of give lip service to that without embracing the reality of that, of that as truth. And John makes it clear here, this is not just a name, it's not just a label, it is who we are. It's reality, it's our identity. And why do we get to enjoy this special status as God's children? only because of his love, his undeserved, unmerited, incredible, marvelous, lavish love. It's his gift to us. And this lavish love from God is the foundation of our relationship with him. Everything else that happens in the life of faith is defined by the fact that we are sons and daughters. And here's, here's something to think about. By nature, every human being is a creature because God created the human race. But when we become followers of Jesus, our status changes. It changes from creature to child. What an amazing transformation in your identity and mine. And it's all due to God's love.
And yet, despite this significant change in who we are, John says the world doesn't recognize us as God's children. I mean, it's pretty amazing. John says, you have been remade. And the world doesn't get it. Why is that? It's because of spiritual blindness. John says that when Jesus walked the earth, people didn't accept him and recognize him, and he was the sinless son of God. So if they didn't recognize Jesus in all of his godly perfection, then as you and I stumble along in our imperfect lives, it's no surprise that people won't recognize us as children of God. But here's the key thing. That doesn't change the truth of our identity. Our world, our culture, our society doesn't get to define who we are. God defines who we are. And our Abba in heaven says, oh yeah, you're imperfect. You got flaws and failings. But you are my kids. I love you. And that's all we need to hold on to, regardless of what other people may recognize in us or not. And as we hold on to that promise, then John wants us to understand it should give us reassurance because we are God's children, then one day we will see God in the next life. We'll stand before him. It's the hope of heaven. And John says the hope of heaven purifies us. Well, how could that be? Here's what I think he means. The hope of heaven purifies us because the hope of heaven is based on the Father's love, not based on ourselves and our abilities and our accomplishments. When we know that we cannot earn our way into heaven, when we recognize that forgiveness of sins is a gift, when we know that God's love for us as his children is unconditional, that our motivation for following Jesus and honoring the Father comes from nothing but love. Because obedience to the Father and following Jesus doesn't earn us anything. We just get God's love. And so we love God because he loves us. And I think what John wants us to see is this. What could be more pure? What could be more spiritual than to be motivated to honor God simply based on love? His love for us that then shapes us, motivates us to love him back. So John starts this passage by telling us that we are God's children because of the lavish love of the Father. But that's only the first part of the picture. Because then he's going to go on and he reminds us that we step into this relationship with the Father through the sacrificial love of the Son. So let's continue on in verse 4 of chapter 3. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Key point, you know that he appeared, he's talking about Jesus, in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides, there's that word again, no one who abides, sticks to, clings to, 
No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, one of the great deceptions promoted by false teachers in Jesus's, or excuse me, in John's day, and it's also promoted by some people in ours, is to claim that Jesus came to earth to be a great moral teacher. That was it. Now, Jesus certainly did do a lot of teaching about morality. And Jesus certainly would like his followers to live moral lives. But John makes clear here that Jesus came to earth for one primary reason. He came to take away our sins. God came to earth in human form. The person we know is Jesus. And he lived among us. And he willingly died on your behalf and mine so we could be forgiven and get connected to God. And that on that long ago Friday afternoon when Jesus was crucified on a cross for our sins, in that moment he performed the greatest act of sacrificial love the world has ever seen. And so John now says, how do we respond How do we respond appropriately to that great act of love? Well, the best way we can honor Jesus' sacrifice is to turn away from sin. He died for our sins, so why should we keep sinning? John says, stop it. (laughs) Stop it. Now, John's human, and he knows that he himself and every believer While we're in this world, we're going to struggle with sin. So he's not claiming that God expects us to live perfect lives. John is talking about habitual, ongoing sinning. What he's saying is that followers of Christ should not be living lives that are typified by sin. Jesus died to set you and I free from our impulses and our urges. And the way to experience freedom from those things is to abide in him to stick to him to cling to him and let's be honest where we spend our time and attention has a huge impact on our character and our motivations what are we taking in that influences for good influences us for good or for evil and we need to abide in Christ And so when you and I spend time in prayer and devotion, when we spend time reading and meditating on Scripture, then over time our habitual sinful desires increasingly fade away. Because abiding with Christ is an antidote. It's a defense to the sinful things that the world throws our way. When you and I embrace the sacrificial love of the Son... And when we bask and abide in the love of the Son, then the power of ongoing repetitive sin can be broken. And yes, we'll still stumble at times and make mistakes at times. But those sins that cling, that drag us down time and time again, God's going to take them away from us. And as that happens then you and I get to experience more and more of what it's like to live as the beloved children of God. 
living in the freedom that comes with being a child of God. The love of the Father, the love of the Son. And there's more to this picture. Because we need help as broken people to overcome the influences of our sinful nature. John's just been talking about turning away from sin. Well, guess what? God wants to help us do that. He's not left us on our own. And this is where we encounter the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. To help us achieve what John just described. And to overcome those nagging, burdensome, repetitive sins God blesses us with the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. So let's take a look at this next section, starting in verse 7. Little children, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In other words, to conquer sin so we could be set free. Key verse, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, as we've seen, God is our Father, and he has a fatherly concern for the church. John is writing as an apostle of God, and he reflects that same kind of attitude. And we see that throughout this letter in various ways. One of the ways we see it is when he refers to his readers as little children. Some Bible translations say, dear children. I like to put those together. Dear little children. That's who we are. John uses that description not only because God is our Father, but also because John himself is something of a father to the entire church. He wrote this letter late in his life at a time when he was known as the elder. Now, every independent congregation has elders, but John was the elder. Because at this point, he most likely was the last remaining alive original 12 disciples. The others had all been, been um, martyred. And John was still alive. Think about that. If you knew John late in life and realized, oh, this is the last guy on earth who spent time with Jesus. Wow. And because of that, John was respected and admired by all. When John spoke, everyone listened. And now, here in this part of his letter, John wants us to grasp exactly what it means to be the little children of God. And he wants us to understand in a very profound way that child of God is not just a nice-sounding phrase or some kind of spiritual metaphor. It is a fact. Remember back in verse 1, John said we're not just called God's children. He said we are God's children. And here in verse 9, he now explains why. And he says it's because we have the seed of our Father within us. And I think this is one of the most dramatic and fascinating 
and unique comments in all of Scripture. Do you know what that word seed refers to? Probably not. But in the original Greek text, the word is sperma. Sperma. Humanly speaking, we know what that is. We know what it does. It's part of the mechanism God has designed by which a child is created. And it carries the DNA of the Father. Now remember, John isn't making this stuff up. He's writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, which means this word is here by design, and the implications are staggering, and I think we need to just stop here and think through it for a few minutes and understand the impact. So let's review some things that we know from other parts of Scripture. Jesus tells us that he's just like the Father. Jesus tells us that the Spirit is just like him. Which means the Holy Spirit has the exact nature and character and essence of God. It all resides there in the Spirit. And therefore, in a very real sense, the Holy Spirit carries God's spiritual DNA. When we repent and we are baptized, we know from Scripture that God places the Spirit within us. That's the moment when the Spirit comes. And what John says happens in that moment, the seed of God comes and implants within us the very nature of the God of heaven and earth. Wow. (laughs) That's why Scripture talks about being born again. When the Spirit comes within us, we are reborn as God's children because you and I actually have the spiritual essence of our Heavenly Father within us. And I don't know how we can ever take that for granted. That reality is incredible. It's amazing. It's mind-boggling. And I don't pretend to understand it all. but I think we can get a handle on what it means. We can do so by once again reflecting on the parallels between human fatherhood and our Heavenly Father. For example, if if you were ever to see a picture of my dad, if I just randomly showed you a picture, you just randomly ran across, you'd look at that picture and go, oh, that guy's got to be Bruce's dad. (laughs) Why? Because we look a lot alike. Why do I look like him? Because I have his DNA in me. And beyond the physical similarities you can see in a photograph, I have a huge amount of the same emotional makeup as my dad. Again, because his DNA is in me. That's the raw material. And then... Throughout my formative years, God molded me and shaped me and coached me and invested in me. He took that raw material and he worked with it. And as a result, Dad's imprint is all over my life. When my wife Julie and I were dating in college, I brought her home for 
the weekend to my house for the first time, and she met my folks, and she later said, oh my goodness, Bruce, when I met your dad, I realized I was looking at you a few decades on. I got a glimpse of the kind of man you would become because the imprint of your dad is so heavily on you. That's what happens when seed is in us. Now, you may reflect your dad or your mom in different ways, but the reality is every one of us is a reflection of our biological DNA. And in the same way, the spiritual DNA of God Almighty is in each of us as followers of Jesus. So all we need to live as a child of God is right here. He's given us the raw material we need. And then as we abide with him, as we stick to the Father and stick to the Son and stick to the Spirit and spend more time with our God, he's going to mold us and shape us and imprint himself on us and we will become increasingly like him. It's a gift of the Father through the Son. But oh, we need to be deeply thankful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He demonstrates the love of God for us by birthing us as a child of God and then walking with us to transform us day by day from the inside out. And so the Holy Spirit helps you and I increasingly look like and act like beloved children of God. I can't tell you how many times I've read this passage and it just blows me away. It gives me goosebumps to realize that the creator of heaven and earth loves me that much. He loves you that much. Now, as I mentioned before, John's writing style is a bit circuitous, it's a bit repetitive, he kind of bounces back and forth and goes around and says the same thing time and again. So here in this part of the passage he mentions once again, as he mentioned earlier, that children of God are people who stop engaging in sin. And he's driving this home to remind us, again, that repetitive sin should not characterize the life of a person who is walking around with the DNA of God in them. And here's the way that I kind of grab hold of this. I think what he is saying is that the more we abide in God, the more we're able to live like God's children. And then the less interesting sin becomes. Sin becomes less and less likely to happen as we increasingly let the nature of God that's been poured into us flow out of us. Because the Spirit just keeps changing us day after day. And then John wants to emphasize that we are children of God and we're not children of the devil. There is a devil who exists and who wants to pull us away from our Father. 
And you know, it's interesting, there was a season in the life of the early church when you repented of your sins and you were baptized, the assumption was if you were not a child of God, you were a child of the devil. And so when you were baptized, you not only affirmed Jesus, you renounced the devil as your father. That's the idea behind what John is saying here. And in our modern world, we view ourselves as so sophisticated that, oh, the devil is just an ancient superstition, but he's not. Satan's a fallen angel. He is the enemy of God. And he's the enemy of our souls. Satan is by nature a deceiver. He's the father of deception, the father of lies. And sadly, he's deceived some people into believing that he doesn't exist. And John wants to remind us here, oh yeah, he does exist. But we are not his children. We don't believe his lies. And so in those moments when we do face temptation, when urges and and compulsions come along and we have a choice in that moment, John wants us to remember who's our father. Our father's not the devil. So we don't get into the lies of the devil that say, oh, just do that. It'll be so fun. It'll be so enjoyable. No, no, no. We serve the Heavenly Father. We are His child, so we choose the other path. We choose the path of honoring God and loving Him by living good, moral, godly lives. And we should want to do that because we're children of the God who lavishes His love on us. The God who lovingly sacrificed Himself for us. The God who implants His nature into your life and mine so that we can live as His beloved children. Enjoying the freedom that comes from not being entangled with the desires of the world. Now all of this is a rich, rich blessing. Yet God does not give us His love in order to hoard it to ourselves individually. He wants us to reflect his unconditional love to each other, to the other members of his family. And he talks about that in verse 10, which is our final verse this morning. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I find this really interesting because earlier in the passage, John said that unbelievers won't recognize us as children of God. But here he says that we can know who the children of God are. And he boils it down to two simple yet profound statements. We're a child of God if we practice righteousness. And we're a child of God if we love other members of God's family, our brothers and sisters. It's important to understand that these are not two separate categories of behavior. They're strongly related, and we can see it more clearly if we paraphrase John's words like this. We're a child of God if we do what is right and we treat people right. Let me expound on that. When we are practicing righteousness, we're doing what God asks. And a huge part of what God asks is that we love others. Jesus said the greatest commandment, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. 
There are many places in the Bible where we are urged to love people who are far from God, but we're also, in places like this, urged to love the other members of God's family. So if we're not loving our brothers and sisters in the faith, then we're not doing what's right. We are omitting a key aspect of what it means to be righteous people. And as we consider that point, I'd like us to reflect back on the ebb and flow of this entire passage. John has spent a lot of time bouncing back and forth between this topic of God's love for his children and the topic of sin. And it's fair to ask, why does he connect those two things? Well, it's because sin fractures relationships within the family of God. When we sin, we're not practicing righteousness, and sin never just damages ourselves. In some way, shape, or form, sin usually damages other people. And some sins, when they become public, damage the reputation of God's family. So one of the best ways you and I can love each other is to practice righteousness and turn away from sin. And when we do that, we are reflecting the love of God our Father. When we do that, we are demonstrating that we are God's children. As I was pondering this verse during the week, it's another thought that popped into my head. Sometimes you and I choose to live in peace with our own unrighteous habits while at the same time choosing not to live in peace with our brothers and sisters in the faith. (laughs) And if we let that happen, then our priorities are pretty messed up. John reminds us here that every follower of Jesus is a child of God. And he wants us to love each other so we can live in peace with each other and then share God's love with the world beyond our doors. And here's where the rubber meets the road. If there's someone in the church who drives you nuts, (laughs) they're a child of God just as much as you are. That person who buttonholes you in the lobby and talks incessantly and never shuts up, That person who's socially awkward and is always interrupting you. That person in your growth group who tries to dominate the discussion. Every one of those people is our spiritual family member. And God our Father, speaking through John, says, Oh, love them. Our Father wants us to love our brothers and sisters even when they annoy the heck out of us. Now this doesn't mean we're always going to be best friends with every other believer. But it does mean we find ways to treat each other with respect. And we learn how to extend grace to those who may rub us the wrong way. The way forward in our life together is to never forget we've been invited into a very special family, a family that was initiated by God and formed by God. And when we embrace the fact that we all are God's dear little children, oh, then it promotes within us some humility. 
and when I realize that I'm, I'm God's dear little child, and you are God's dear little child, then it becomes ever easier to accept each other, to put up with each other, and yes, even to love each other. And we can do that and enjoy the richness of living together as the beloved children of God our Father. Here's a real life example of how this can play out. Back when I was in college, I volunteered to help in the Sunday school ministry of our church. And I was assigned to work with another college student named Stan, and together we were to teach Bible lessons to middle school kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, it was a tough assignment teaching a bunch of preteens, many of whom would rather not have been in church on a nice Sunday morning. <laughs> but that teaching assignment was made worse by the fact, made tougher by the fact, that Stan and I didn't actually like each other. <laughs> not one bit. We had not known each other, we'd been thrown together to do this, and we quickly discovered that we had very different personalities, very different interests and temperaments. I was a talkative guy, Stan was very quiet. I liked team sports, he preferred to sit alone in the chemistry lab and do very arcane experiments. And I loved discussion and debate, and Stan liked to lecture and make pronouncements. Other than our faith in Jesus, we had almost nothing in common. Well, as you imagine, it wasn't easy for us to agree on lesson plans and approaches. It wasn't easy for us to figure out how to divvy up the work. And in our planning meetings and the execution of the teaching, we kept trying to impose our will on the other, which meant we were constantly butting heads, we were constantly at an impasse. And I got frustrated and went to the pastor and tried to quit. And he talked me into staying. And he was very wise. He talked me into staying for two reasons. He said, Bruce, we need to have two teachers with these kids. And we're not a big church. You and Stan are it. <laughs> if either of you quits, we won't have anyone to provide biblical instruction to our middle schoolers. But here's the next thing he said. This isn't just about what God wants for the kids. It's also about what God wants for you in this moment, Bruce. And I think he wants to teach you something profound about how to get along with another child of God. How to love a brother in the faith who is so radically different from you. So pray and ask God, Father, help me learn to love Stan as a brother. And then the pastor said, pray and wait with expectation and see what God might do. Well, I found out later that Stan, because of his frustration with me, he'd also tried to quit. <laughs> and when I heard that, I got really offended. <laughs> Why should he try to quit? I was a great guy to work with. He was the problem. <laughs> In that attitude, can you see maybe part of the problem? <laughs> Because when there's a conflict, we don't see our part in it. Well, the pastor gave Stan the same advice as me, and we learned all about this, and so we sheepishly apologized to each other. 
and we resolved to try to make a fresh start. And the first thing that God prompted us to do was to make a list of each other's strengths. And then rather than see these things as competing with each other, we look for ways to treat them as complementary to each other. And we said, Father, can you show us, please? How can our unique, God-ordained differences actually work together in harmony for our sake and for the sake of these kids that we want to teach? And once we opened ourselves up to that and started looking, we found some answers. To cite one primary example, since I loved discussions, I would start the lesson off each week by asking the students questions about the biblical text. I'd get a conversation going. I got them involved and engaged. And since Stan preferred to lecture and make statements, then at the end of the discussion, he'd step in and he'd wrap things up with a short lecture. That's just one of many examples. But as we started to work together, instead of fighting each other, we found more and more ways to operate in harmony. And our appreciation for each other and our respect for each other just grew and grew and grew. And one day, he and I were sitting in the, in the dorm room there at college, and we're preparing a lesson. And all of a sudden, as I looked at this guy, it hit me, you know what? I love this guy. I love Stan. I love this brother in Christ. And I've learned to love the fact that God made him so very different than me. And I'm grateful for the wise advice of the pastor who said, hang in there so that I could get to know this brother. And I'm grateful to the God who loves me so much that he used Stan's radical differences from me to help me grow. And as those thoughts were going through my head, it was almost as if Stan read my mind because he looked up at me and he said, Bruce, I've really come to love teaching with you. You know, we're a good team. I love you, brother. Now, what, what happened between Stan and I, I've learned that that kind of experience seldom is possible when human beings are left on our own. But when we abide in the love of God, then he helps us to truly love one another. And then we get to experience the best that God has for us as we experience peace in our relationships and we serve together in joy. Brothers and sisters, I hope that we never forget what John has written here. It's one of the prof most profound ways in which God wants to mark his people. John wants us to know that a sticky community of faith always, always lives together as the beloved children of God. Because that is who we are. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your lavish and overwhelming love. And I pray that we would respond to you always out of love and not out of fear or guilt because you're our Father. 
And Lord, as we abide in your love, then help us to learn day by day how to be more loving toward each other within your family. May we continually be transformed by the reality of your seed within us. Your spiritual DNA that you poured into us. So we can be who you invite us to be. Your beloved children. And we pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.